Good morning again. So this fall we've been doing a series on the meals that Jesus eats with people in the Gospel of Luke, which means that, and today we're on the Last Supper, which means that we are, at, if you know of any of the meals, this is the one you knew was coming. If only because we talk about it every week, you knew that we were going to be talking about this meal. And it is arguably the most important meal that Jesus eats in the Gospel of Luke. It's the one with which we are the most familiar. And I think it's also the one that, to me, I have seen the most differently. The differentest? No, the most differently um, because of this series. Because we call it the Last Supper. But we don't necessarily think all that much about that word last. Maybe it just means, you know, obviously Jesus ate supper, and this is just the last one that he ate before he died. Except that we have recognized that Jesus's ministry, in Jesus' ministry, the meals that he ate were an important part. And so as we look at the Last Supper, the Last Supper doesn't necessarily uh, stand on its own as this completely unique separate event. It stands in a sequence of Jesus' entire ministry in which meals played a very important role. So today, as we go into the Last Supper, we get to see it in a broader context of what it means as a part of a ministry of meals. We're also going to look at the entire conversation that they have at the meal in the Gospel of Luke, because when we go to the Last Supper just looking for the Lord's Supper, then it can seem like everything else that follows in those conversations are just kind of tacked on things, principles that are good, but you don't, but we, you don't necessarily know how they all flow together. But as you look at the Last Supper as part of this ministry of Jesus, all of a sudden that whole context, that whole sequence of conversations makes more sense. So I'm going to start by reading the entire passage, and then we are going to dig into the Last Supper and look at what we can learn from reading it in this context. We're in Luke 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from it in the fruit of the, again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, the, king of the, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Perhaps you may already see what I'm talking about in that passage, that it, it strikes differently as we read it in the context of a ministry of meals. You may also have seen what I was talking about in that the flow of that conversation is not necessarily clear. It kind of seems like one thing doesn't necessarily follow on the other if we're simply looking at the basis for the Lord's Supper. But as we place this meal in the context of Jesus' ministry, it sheds a different light on what Jesus is doing throughout the course of this whole meal. And in every stage of this meal, Jesus is doing the same thing. He is equipping his disciples for the same mission. First of all, we need to remember the context that we've looked at over the past however many weeks, that Jesus spent his ministry using his presence at meals to transform people. Remember, way back in the first meal that we looked at with Levi, we talked about how the difference between Jesus and the, Levi, and the, the, between Jesus and the Pharisees, the biggest difference was that the Pharisees simply told people what they needed to do to be better and waited for them to do it. Whereas Jesus actually claimed to be the physician who could heal them with his presence. Right? He prescri- his prescription to them was, spend time with me and you will be transformed. And that has been the theme from meal to meal to meal, that the presence of Jesus actually makes a difference so that people can become the people that they were called to be by God. Right, so this has been a ministry of presence, that being with Jesus radically transforms people. Last week, we compared the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, and how the rich young ruler was seeking instructions to get to heaven, and Jesus said, give away everything that might distract you from me, and come follow me. And he, and he couldn't do it. But Zacchaeus sought to spend time with Jesus, and through spending G- time with Jesus, was transformed into someone who wanted to give to others. It is the presence of Jesus that makes the difference. And when you remember that, then it helps us to understand the significance of how Jesus begins the meal. Put yourself in the position of a disciple who follows a Messiah who has been saying for three years that the hope for the world is in encountering him in his presence. And that most often happens in a meal. And then he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Because I'm not going to eat Passover again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Well, okay, maybe he's just talking about not eating that meal. Um, 
except that notice he says I. He doesn't say we. Jesus is leading the disciples in a movement, and if he's saying, hey, the kingdom's going to come before next Passover, he would probably say something more like, hey, we're not going to eat Passover again until the kingdom comes. But it's not just Passover, because then he takes the cup and he says, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, here's something that's important. Uh, you would be amazed at how much wine they drank back then. Not because they all got constantly drunk, but because they drank it all the time, because their, uh, their resources for drinkable liquids were very slim. Think about what you have in your home that you could safely drink if it wasn't refrigerated and it didn't have preservatives in it. Basically, you've got water, milk within a certain amount of time frame after it's been, the cow's been milked, and then wine, because wine, the fermentation makes it safe. Uh, it means they can store it and keep it, keep it drinkable for a long time. That's why they drank wine at every meal. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm not going to be participating in any meals until the kingdom comes. It's the whole other end of the scale from just saying, I'm not going to eat Passover. And notice again, he's saying, I, not we. So what Jesus is saying is that he's not going to be participating in any more meals until the kingdom comes. But the implication is that the disciples will. So he's not saying the kingdom's coming before breakfast. He's saying that he is no longer going to be participating in the meals himself. But there's this interesting thing that happens that he, I, I hadn't really noticed this until this time when I was studying for the sermon, that he takes his cup. They all have a cup. But he takes his cup and he hands it to them and says, share this. You take this. This is not the communion cup yet. But he says, take my portion and drink it yourselves. And what that's communicating, both from the symbolism of drinking a cup and from what's going to come next, is that Jesus is bringing them into his portion of the meal and his portion of the ministry, his portion of the mission. He's saying, you take my portion, you take my role. So what's happening here is that at the Last Supper, Jesus prepared his disciples to carry on his ministry without his physical presence. There are going to be meals in the future where the disciples are present and Jesus is not. And he's calling on them to lead those meals and to do his ministry. Now, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with being delegated a ministry uh, when the, the relevant part of the ministry is Jesus' presence? The problem is the presence of Peter doesn't save anybody. Right? The presence of John, James, any of those guys isn't going to help people. They can't change people any more than the Pharisees can. So if the essential element of the ministry is the presence of Jesus, then how are you going to be able to carry that on without Jesus? This is a, this is a, a shocking thing for Jesus to say, and they're not going to understand it for a very long time. And that's actually how the conversation ends. The last part of this conversation the, the passage that we read is just a note to remind us that the disciples didn't understand anything that we're about to talk about. But that's, that's the problem that is presented to them as Jesus moves from that cup into the Lord's Supper. 
because he is calling the disciples to carry on a ministry that depends on the presence of Jesus, and he's saying, I'm not physically going to be there. Then he says this, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So they have been training in this ministry of Jesus' presence, that Jesus being present is what makes the difference. And Jesus says, You're going to go out without me. But you know what? This bread, this is my body. This cup, this is my blood. What is he telling them? He's telling them that he is going to be present in those meals. That through what is about to happen to him, he is going to be able to be present in those meals. And not just in some abstract way where we say, oh, well, God is always with us, but in a tangible way. In the bread and in the cup, he says, Do this in remembrance of me. That means to bring Jesus forward into that moment, to make him present in the moment. So what's happening as he teaches them to do the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper plays this very pivotal role in a ministry of presence. Through the bread and the cup, Jesus gave them a way to make his presence part of any meal. In this moment, all of a sudden now, Jesus can be present in 12 places. See, Jesus has been doing his ministry one town at a time. He's one guy going around a Podunk County in the backwaters of the Roman Empire and because and he, he's one person. And at the beginning, you see the limitations of Jesus' ministry at the beginning of Luke because in the first chapter of his ministry, everybody's coming to him from all these towns, uh, from, from this town that he's in, and he has to stop doing ministry, while there are still people unhealed, still people who haven't heard the gospel, to go to the next town because he needs to go to all the towns. There is a limitation on a ministry of presence when it's one physical human being's body that, that is the presence. And in the gospel of John, Jesus actually says, you will do greater works than me. And I think what he's talking about is this right here, that Jesus is delegating the ministry of his presence to his disciples, and he makes it possible for them to make his presence part of the meals that they are at. Jesus can be present wherever they go. And as they bring people into the church, Jesus can be in the meals that they're a part of. So this whole power that Jesus has to transform people's lives, he is delegating to his people. Now that is a very dangerous thing, to delegate the presence of Jesus into the hands of people. Right? And Jesus acknowledges that right off the bat, because even here in the, in the Lord's Supper, one of you is a traitor. One of you who's, with, who's actually in the physical, my physical presence is, is against the kingdom of God and is going to try to destroy it tonight. Right off the bat, he recognizes that, is that there, is a, there is human weakness in the people that he's giving this power to. And it's not just, it's not just Judas. 
Because when Jesus points out that Judas is, that one person is going to betray them, it marks this chain reaction. Because then everybody else starts arguing about, well, it's not me, right? And the way it's phrased in Greek, it's clear that that's what they're saying. It, it's not me, right? They're protesting, they're, they're claiming innocence. I would never do that. And you can see how that might lead directly into the next stage of the conversation. It seems to go from, it wouldn't, it's not me. Well, how do you know it's not you? Well, I'm too important, right? I'm, look, I'm the guy sitting right next to him. I got to go up on the mountain of transfiguration with him. I got to do this. He gave me that. Remember that time? He gave me that pat on the back. And, I, and they start arguing about who is the greatest. As if being great meant that they were impervious to failure. And if you've been tracking with what happens at the meals that Jesus eats in the Gospels, you will have seen this same idea come up over and over again among the Pharisees. How often in these meals that we've discussed has this idea of ambition come up? This idea of looking out for number one. This fear of missing out where I need to make sure that I have the best place, that I'm going to get in. If anybody gets in, I need to get in. I need to be the greatest. This same me-first mentality that has been revealed in Pharisee after Pharisee after Pharisee rears its ugly head among the disciples at the Lord's Supper. You would think that in the presence of Jesus, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, if, it was, if there was ever going to be a Lord's Supper, that would be, the, the per, if there was going to be, ever going to be a perfect Lord's Supper, that would be it. <laughs> Actually, that group in the next 24 hours, has a failure rate of 100%. Everybody's going to fail in some way. And so Jesus addresses that danger right away. Remember what he tells them. He says, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? So here's the danger that God faces every time he delegates his power to human beings, is that we're going to use it for the exact opposite of what he intends. And the danger of handing over the power of the presence of Jesus, putting it into the hands of human beings, and making it the responsibility of the church, is that human beings are going to use that power for themselves. And if you know the history of the church, you know that that is exactly what we have done. In generation after generation, we have found all kinds of ways to use that power for ourselves. There, were time, there have been times when the most powerful people on earth have been the leaders of churches. Specifically, the power over communion. Popes have used control of the communion table to depose emperors. John Wesley used it to embarrass a woman who broke off an engagement with him. From the huge political to the personal and petty. We do this today. We, we, we tie up the church with power and prestige, with social dignity, we, with how we, even, if, even if the dignity that we tie into it is just in our own heads. That even if nobody else thinks I'm a better person for my role in the church, I do. Or for my, how much I know Jesus, at least I know you know, we, we tie it up with a self-interest. But Jesus says that if you are doing my ministry, remember what you saw here tonight at the meal. Remember what role I played. I could have made you serve me. 
but I served you, and I gave you my portion. That means if you are going to do my ministry, you are going to serve, not rule. Jesus reminded them that their role was to serve at his table, not lord over his table. That the only way that they could carry on his ministry was by serving, not by seeking power, seeking control, seeking wealth, seeking any advantage for themselves. You cannot lord over the table. It already has a lord. You can only serve at it. In this next moment, again, it may not immediately, it didn't immediately seem to me like it followed, but as I studied and, and I watched what, what was pointed out to me by some of the um, commentators, this turned into a really beautiful, important moment. Jesus, after telling them this, after saying that you can only do my ministry by serving, then he changes subjects a little bit. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So right after he said that you're going to, the only way to do my ministry is to serve rather than to lord over people, he's saying, hey, Simon, Satan's going to come after all of you. All of you are going to fall tonight. And when you have turned back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Notice he says he didn't pray that Simon would be kept from falling and be the perfect one who could lift up his fellows. Jesus prayed that when he fell and turned back, Jesus prayed for him so that when he fell and turned back, he would be able to strengthen his brothers. Now, now, Simon does not think that he needs that experience. He doesn't think that he needs to go through that, that rejection or that, that, um, that, fall, that failure and that return. So he says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I'm ready now. I don't need, don't worry about that. I'm not going to go through that. I'm going to be fine and I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, no, before dawn, you will have already fallen the way I said you were going to. This is going to happen. See, Peter thinks that he's ready. He is eventually going to go to prison and death with Jesus. That will happen. He thinks he's ready for it now, but he's not ready. Because Peter thinks that he has seen enough and done enough and learned enough to be a master of the faith and go forward. What he's forgotten is his dependence on Jesus. And what he's going to learn by failing in the moment when it mattered most is that he's never not going to be dependent on Jesus. And it is because he learned that the hard way that he is going to be able to strengthen his brothers. What Jesus is telling them is that they need to lead not from perfection or the idea of perfection, but from repentance. I will tell you this. This is simply my personal experience. This isn't a law, although my experience is held true in this. Every pastor, every good pastor I know that I respect 
has gone through some kind of experience that thoroughly humbled them. That is the common denominator that I've noticed in the pastors that I really respect where I have seen God work powerfully through them. They have been humbled. Now, that may mean that they went through some kind of failure, or it may mean they went through some kind of, they got sent through the ringer in ways where they had to depend on Jesus. But every pastor that I know of that, is, that, that I respect, they have that experience in them. And I'll tell you this, I have been sent through the ringer. And, and wherever I'm at in my journey with God and, and in my ministry, I will tell you that if I hadn't been sent through the ringer in the ways I have, I don't know what kind of pastor I would be, but I would be, um, I wouldn't, I would be a much worse pastor. I would be a much more arrogant pastor. I would be a much more thoughtless pastor because I would think that I've got it figured out. And I will tell you that in instances where I've heard surprising things from pastors that didn't seem very pastoral, I've often noticed that they hadn't gotten put through the ringer. And I think the reason why this is important is it's part of what we recognize every week, right? We go through this moment where we confess our brokenness and our need for Jesus, and we celebrate the way we've been transformed because that's the message that we have. The message that we have isn't that if you learn your Bible well enough, you don't need anything else. It's going to be smooth sailing. Our, our message is not that we can give you the 12 steps to get your life back on track, and then you'll be fine. Our message is that you need Jesus every day, that we all need Jesus every day. And it doesn't matter where you are in your journey, you're never done needing Jesus. And that we all are being transformed by him. And we all have hope in him. We are dependent on Jesus. And Jesus is saving us. So what, that's what we actually have to offer people. It's not some better 12-step plan. It's not some better law. It's not some better process. It's Jesus. Here's the thing. People prefer 12-step plans. People prefer check marks, check boxes. They prefer to get it done and put it off to the side so they can focus on number one and focus on their other priorities. And Jesus warns them about what's going to happen when the world finds out what kind of Messiah he is. He says, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandal, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Because when Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, he said, don't take anything, just go. And people will just... Just go into the first door there. They welcome you. Everything will happen for you. You'll be taken care of. Don't worry about it. And so they go. And that's what happens. And they come back celebrating because of how easy it was. And Jesus said, remember? Remember when everything got done for you? Yeah, it's not going to be like that anymore. Sorry. That's not how it's going to be. He says, if now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, it's important to notice here, that is a... Uh, a proverb, a parable, that when he says, sell a cloak and buy a sword, that's not like just a normal statement. Because the whole point is, it, it's a communication of urgency. Because your cloak is what keeps you warm. It would be like saying to someone in January, sell, you need a gun, sell your winter coat to get a gun. What that means is that the violence is more imminent than the, weather, the danger from the weather. Right? It's saying, this is urgent, be ready. He's not actually talking about swords. Okay? 
He's saying this is serious, that things are going to be different now. What's the difference? Well, he says, it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is going to stand before the authorities in Jerusalem and proclaim himself, proclaim exactly who he is and the kind of Messiah he is. And when people see him for who he is, they're going to reject him. When they see the kind of Messiah that he is, the kind of Messiah that doesn't satisfy what they wanted, they are going to reject him. In the past, Jesus' followers benefited from the fact that people didn't really know what Jesus stood for. He was kind of the dark horse candidate, and they, you know, they, they, they just got caught up in the enthusiasm. They invited them in because they wanted to know who Jesus was. Now it's going to come out that Jesus actually isn't about conquering the Romans. He's not actually going to lead you in a violent revolt. He's not actually going to bring you power and put you in charge over your enemies. He's calling us to serve. His path led to him dying, and he expects us to take up our crosses too. Yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that kind of Messiah. We're not interested in that kind of message. And so that benefit of the doubt that the disciples were getting, it's gone once, they, once it's revealed to everyone who Jesus is. So he's telling them to prepare for a hard path once the world discovered what kind of Messiah Jesus was. When it's all out in the open, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is building and the kind of path that he calls us to walk, people are going to realize, oh yeah, I don't actually want that. I mean, it's amazing how often people will talk about Jesus as a great moral teacher. And it's usually because they aren't that familiar with what he said. Because you can't untangle what Jesus said from his call to follow him, from his call to serve, to commit radically to serving and loving others, even at the danger to your own self. You can't actually separate those things. And people will, if, if, the only way to consider Jesus a great teacher is to consider him the Messiah and be willing to follow him. And that last, the last thing at the end here is just proof to us that the disciples didn't get it because they think he's actually talking about swords. So they say, well, we've already got two swords with us. We brought those with us. And Jesus says, that's enough. Now in the Greek, it's clear that he's not saying two swords is enough. He's saying, all right, moving on. You're not going to get it. Now it's like, like at some point during, during a high school math class, when you're like, all right, well, we've talked it over enough. We're just going to have to move on. You'll figure it out later. You know, because at this point, they're not going to understand until they come out the other side of the trials that they're facing. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is about, or the, the Last Supper is about Jesus taking this ministry that he's been building of his presence, this ministry that transforms people not through force or through... Um, through cruelty, not through canceling people, not through rejecting people, but through loving, loving presence and handing it off to the disciples and preparing them to carry that ministry on. And these parts, of the, he probably said a lot more than this. We know he said more than this because we've got pieces of it in other gospels. But these, this has been preserved for us because we need to be able to do the same thing. Because the first thing I want you to take away from this is that Jesus has given us the job of sharing his presence with the lost. That's what you and I are called to do. This is why we continue the Lord's Supper to this day. That wasn't just for the 12 and however many other were there in the upper room at that time. 
Jesus continues to be present in the bread and in the cup. He continues to be present in his people when they gather and as they follow his example and as they serve others. He continues to transform people. That's why we're here, right? That's why we keep coming back. And so we need to remember our mission. Too often we get caught up in thinking, okay, our mission is to simply list out for the world all the things they're doing wrong and all the things they need to do to get it right. Now, it is important for us to testify to the truth. It is absolutely important for us to testify to the truth. But we do not fix the world by listing the rights and the wrongs. How many of you have known things were wrong, you know, getting caught up in sins that you knew were wrong and knowing, knowing they were wrong didn't make a difference, right? You don't actually have to raise your hands. I'm assuming that's all of us, right? Like it, how, how often are you caught up in sin? I knew it was wrong the whole time. I never thought that was okay, but I was still, I still, I wanted to. I couldn't not want to. <laughs> Remember that it's, we talked about this last week, there's Jesus who gives us a reason to repent, <clears throat> We can't expect the world to want to be like Jesus until they've met him. And so our job is sharing the presence of Jesus. And we do that by behaving like Jesus. Notice that Jesus, I, I, think, I think it would be fair to take from what Jesus is saying during this meal that one of the necessary elements of the Lord's Supper is the attitude of service. We get caught up in debates about, well, is it leavened bread or unleavened bread? Does grape juice count or does it have to be wine? Can you use one cup? Do you have to use one cup or can it be multiple cups? And we get caught up in all these debates about, like, does it have to be a priest? Does it have to say it in Latin? And what we don't actually dwell on as often is the attitude that we bring to the table and how essential that is. That we... Bring Jesus, we bring the presence of Jesus to people as we obey him and behave like him. You can bring all the bread and wine to people that you want, and if you're not acting like Jesus, they're not going to find him in it. And that's why it's important for us to remember what Jesus emphasized in this meal and what we saw emphasized in so many other meals, that we cannot share his presence through power or prestige. We can only share Jesus through service and humility. People do not experience Jesus when we try to control them. People do not experience Jesus when we try to take power, when we try to look out for number one. They don't experience Jesus when we act just like the rest of the world. When we act like we have no hope other than the power that everyone else is scrabbling for. They will not experience Jesus... as we act in those ways. They experience Jesus as we act like Jesus, meaning as we serve and as we're humble. As we don't pretend to be the people who have it all figured out, but we proudly proclaim that we know the one who has it all figured out. as we trust that we can do the right thing, even in the danger of people doing the wrong thing to us, and God will take care of everything. 
if we trust that we can hang on to our integrity, that we can be godly, that we can represent Jesus to the world and not be afraid of what the world will do to us. Because that's the temptation that we face over and over again. Is we get sucked into the world's way of thinking, the world's way of being afraid that if I don't look out for me in whatever way I can, then I'm going to miss out. And Jesus says, no, we serve others because we trust that God has everything under control. Does anybody intellectually at least think that God doesn't have everything under control? I mean, we know on some level that if God exists, he's got everything under control. There's, there's in the middle ground there, right? So God has everything under control. But to get that into our bones and our muscles, it's really hard. But that's what it means to follow Jesus. And if everything that we say is true, then we have to recognize one other thing. That sharing the presence of Jesus is not easy. Jesus told them it wasn't going to be easy. All the powers of the world would array against it. But it's the only real hope that there is. Because if we don't have Jesus, if the presence of Jesus doesn't transform people, what else can we offer them? I will tell you this. Without the presence of Jesus, this isn't going to make a difference. This does not make a difference unless people are transformed by the Holy Spirit and unless they know Jesus. It's not that we have the best book because books don't save people. It's Jesus. It's not that we have a political majority. It's not that we have the best music or, the, or whatever else that we think we might have in our favor. We know that none of that makes the difference. Jesus makes the difference. And so there's no good in us going to other sources, trying to change the world in other ways, trying to change our lives in other ways. What we have that changes the world is the presence of Jesus. And that's it. And that is more than enough. Amen? Every time we hear the gospel, we believe that God is calling us to respond. And so I'm going to ask you to think right now, as I call the worship team up, about how God is calling you to respond in this moment.